0: So in this series, did God really say what we're evaluating ultimately comes down to what is true and what is a lie and what is the foundation of truth in your life? And we're trying to figure out where is your ultimate authority? Where does all of that lie? And so this entire series, in case you're wondering, is heavily influenced from two people. The first is John Mark Comer, and I'm saying this at the front because I don't want to plagiarize, just want to be honest. Heavily influenced from John Mark Comer, if you ever want to go and do some further reading. His book, Live No Lies, has influenced a lot of this, and it's incredible. It's so good. It will, like, not hyperbole, it could change your life. It's wonderful. Uh, And then Joel Thomas, our lead pastor at our Buckhead Church campus, has taken a lot of that content and developed it into a series called, Did God Really Save? So we are taking a lot of Joel's content and replicating it here for college students at TLR. But tonight is going to be a little bit different. Tonight is going to be one that didn't fit in that mess in that series he did last winter, but it is still very connected to what we see in that book, Live No Lies. And I think this one in particular has the possibility of being the most impactful and the most powerful of all these conversations we're going to have. Um, so in week one, in case you missed it, just as a little bit of a recap, what we really talked about is, yes, there's this foundation of truth and you need to figure out who your ultimate authority is in life and who is your God really, but... But it ultimately comes down to why this matters is because in your life, you are constantly barraged and bombarded with information all the time. And more likely than not, it's not just true information, but it's this idea, this word, misinformation. We are getting this everywhere we turn. Like you can't help but get misinformation in your life from news, from from social media, from stuff online, from anyone around you with an opinion is going to give you something that they present as fact. And sometimes that can be misinformation. So I shared my story of when I got in a fight with a preacher. It was great. It wasn't a fist fight, but it was at UGA, one of these Tate preachers, these guys who had, had bull horns and they would scream out these things about God that just weren't true. And so through this conversation and this idea of finding the right information, We ultimately are hoping to answer some of the biggest questions in life, the questions that I think a lot of us, especially in this season, navigate. Questions like, who is God? And then who am I? And then what does that mean for my future? Who is God? Who am I? What does that mean for my future? And last week we landed on who is God? And at the end of it, really what we're trying to get down to is not just who is God, but personally, who is your God Is it your feelings? Is it your logic? Is it your reason? Is it your your friends, your influences? Or is it actually the ultimate authority of the creator God who made you? And as we evaluate this, we see that there's an enemy trying to attack that, trying to deceive you into believing that you can't trust him, that he doesn't love you, and that he's not worth following. And so that is a, a lie that he gives to us. And so we saw the difference of truth and lies. And has a clear, easy, super tangible definition. Truth is reality is where we landed. Truth is reality. It's the things that are real. And as a result, the opposite lies are unreality. If truth is reality, then lies are unreality. And so within these three questions, who is God and who am I? And what does that mean for my future? What we want to land tonight is on the question, who am I? This is where we want to talk about, take that big kind of question and make it super personal. Who am I? And whenever we ask this, a lot of times people are like, I think I know who I am and I think I know who I am because of what I do, but, <clears throat> but here's the problem. I recently heard this idea that the idea of finding yourself in what you do, that what I do is who I am, has become the new religion in our world. In our culture, the idea that who I am is really just what I do is this thing that drives us forward. And so it's not, it's not a question to answer based on, based on your experience. It's really a question to answer super personally. If you get real down deep, if you're able to get really vulnerable and honest, because what I wanna find out is who am I really? Who are you really? Like at the core of who you are, where do you find the things that make you who you are? And see, here's why this question, I think, is so important for this season of life that you're in and for all of us to talk about tonight. Because this question, essentially, it involves something that every single one of you are going to wrestle with, something that all of you are asking, whether you're aware of it and you're asking audibly or not. It's something that every single one of you in this season is trying to nail down. And it's ultimately all about your identity. I've even heard someone this um, this guy, Tim Keller, who's this pastor up in New York, this I mean, just incredibly wise guy, was asked, if you were to start over your church in New York and launch it in New York today, instead of when you did 20, 30, 40 years ago, whenever it was, would you do anything different? And he said, I think I'd change the messaging that I'm giving all the time because the generations that are coming up are constantly trying to find out and being told who they are. In other words, who is your identity? And where do you find that? And so before you start assessing and answering the question for yourself of, well, who am I really? What is my identity? Maybe there are some of you tonight that you need to start by evaluating what sources are actually influencing that answer. For some of you, what that means is that tonight you may actually need to break down a little bit of what you've thought before and then maybe even begin to get rid of some of those voices that aren't necessarily speaking truth to you. And see, for some of you, this is gonna be a little bit of a disorientation of your identity. But the reason why we're starting with this, this disorientation of your identity, is so that once we disorient those things and those voices, you are going to be able to reorient into truth of who you really are. And see, the reason why we need to disorient ourselves from this is because there are so many forces and situations and experiences and circumstances around you, and most of them you didn't even ask for. But all of these sources around you are vying for space in your head and in your heart, trying to tell you and trying to declare for you who you are. And so last week I drew some stuff out that was what Joel did and I tried my best. I can't draw a stick figure well, so we're just gonna, you're just going to stay with me and give me this thing called grace. Appreciate it. And so what I want to talk about tonight is you and who you are. And what we're really discussing is the fact that there are sources all around you that are vying for space in your head and in your heart to determine who you are. And these things are things that every single one of us experience. Every single one of us have these things in some different way. Your, your experience may be different from, someone's, from someone else's, but you ultimately have these things. What I'm talking about is like your opportunities. Every one of you have opportunities, or maybe you feel like in the season you have a lack of opportunities, But you all have opportunities and those opportunities are something that's trying to determine who you are. It's something that's a part of your life. All of you have stuff. Some of you may have better stuff, some of you may have different stuff, but you've got your stuff. And then all of you have time. And I don't just mean that you have time like to use, I mean that you are even born into a time. You are a product of the time that you were born into. So this is an outside influence that actually tells something about you. And every one of you are a part of a culture. You're living inside of a culture, the culture with our society, the culture of America. And a huge part to that culture is social media, like TikTok games that make people a little bit objectified if they're guys. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, those kinds of games. So social media is a big thing. Maybe for some of you, you've started to have some Some successes in life, and maybe if you don't have it now because you're a broke college kid, sooner or later as you get into life, you'll find there are successes. And those successes start to determine a little bit of your lifestyle, your experience, your viewpoint for a lot of you, and this is something that all of us navigate. Maybe it's your friends. It's the people in your life you call your friends, or maybe it's your family. Whether you live with your family right now or not, it could be your family, uh, let's see what else for some of you, you're dealing with this and I wish you didn't have to, but it's just reality. If this pen will work, is it got some enemies, got a lot of enemies. We got enemies in our life. What do we do with the enemies in our life? Because there are people that we feel like are against us, but ultimately they're vying for a space to tell us who we are because of the experience we have with them. And then ultimately, I think this is the one that maybe plays out the most. Is that we make decisions in life and then those decisions make us. And those decisions sometimes aren't the best ones. And we make mistakes. And watch, all of us make mistakes. Let's be honest. Raise your hand if you've ever made a mistake before. (gasps) No way. Cool. So in other words, if you're a perfectionist, get over it. That's not going to work. But here's what's true. What happens is in our life, we have all these things, social media and culture, our stuff, our family, our friends, all of this stuff is a part of our life. But all of these external forces, what they're ultimately trying to do is they're trying to determine who you are. And whenever you start to begin to give them space in your head and in your heart and evaluate who you are through this lens, they start to create a narrative about you. And so if you're not careful before long, you start to allow these things that have happened to you, the good and the bad, and they start to declare a narrative about who you are. So then you start to answer the question of, well, who am I really? And it's normally driven through these emotions. So maybe your opportunities weren't what you wanted and you felt overlooked. Maybe that's something that you felt before. That's not a fun feeling to feel overlooked. Maybe from your stuff, you didn't have what you want, what, uh, what other people had, and so you started to feel envious. Maybe with your time, maybe you didn't feel like you were born into the situation or the place you wanted, and you just felt devalued as a result of that. Whether it was something systemic, something from your family, something that you had no control over, just made you feel devalued. Maybe with culture, culture I have figured out is so fast, and it has nothing to do with the rhythms and the way of Jesus. It has everything to do with the rhythms and the way of America, but that's our culture, and we're constantly hurried. Maybe for social media, this is the one that is so tough. Is it can just make you feel alone because you start to feel like, oh, I got all this community, but it's all false sense of community. And so you feel isolated. You feel alone. And if you don't feel alone, that probably means you don't have social media. It's fun wisdom. For those of you that have success, and maybe that success has been something good, it just makes you feel like you gotta be busy. I gotta keep up with the Joneses. I gotta keep this success going up and to the right always. And it makes you feel so busy. Maybe if you have friends, and maybe those friends have moments where they don't act like friends, Maybe what you start to feel is that you're not enough. You can't keep up. You can't compare. Something that they have Since some moment has been better or worse, and maybe for some of you, and this can be the most difficult one sometimes, it's family, whether the family that you were born into or the family that adopted you, or even for some of you, the family that you choose. If things don't go well within your family, all of a sudden, without even knowing it, it can make you feel unwanted. It can make you feel like, you're, like you don't belong. Nobody actually loves you. No one cares for you. No one wants to take care of you. And then things start to happen to you. Whenever things happen to you, very quickly we become the victim. We start to see life through the lens of the fact that we've been victimized by something. And then I think the one that I want to land on most tonight is the reality that whenever we make mistakes, so many times we feel guilty. And all of these things in our life, these These circumstances outside of our life and around our life start to determine something about the way that we experience life. Everything that happens outside of us begins to inform something about who we truly are. And so what happens when we're not careful is we start to have a bad experience. And here's what we do. All of us do this. You do this as kids. You still do this as adults. You may not even know it. Is we think that something happened that was bad. And then that bad experience made me feel bad. But because I had a bad experience that made me feel bad, that must mean that I am bad. And we start to have an active association of our experiences to our identity. So because something I had was bad, made me feel bad, that must mean that I am bad. And this is actually a philosophical thought of this guy, Rene Descartes. He was a 17th century mathematician. And here's what he says. He says, I think, therefore, I am, I think, therefore I am. Now Descartes went down this rabbit hole of trying to figure this out because he was looking to try to find like, what's consciousness and what is real? And in his pursuit of this, his conclusion was that what I process in my mind and in my heart based on reality is what really determines who I really am. Based on the experiences around me and how I perceive them in my brain, that's what truly determines who I am because that's all I can be sure of is what he says. And now this line of thinking, you need to know, has also infiltrated, whether you've actually heard this, said this, whatever, this line of thinking has infiltrated so much of psychology, philosophy, and our modern Western thinking. And in particular, it has infiltrated it when it comes to the idea of individual identity. I think that's where it plays out the most is this idea of individual identity. Because before we're even aware of it, things start to happen in our brains and happen in our minds and experiences happen to us that make us start to question, who am I really? And I found this out to be true for myself recently. So I'm in a season ahead of y'all, but this is something, this is a problem, this identity thing, these insecurities that swell up whenever something happens to us is something that all of us deal with. And so recently... I found that I was susceptible to this too. I had a friend, kind of a colleague who made a comment to someone else. Um, This is someone that I would spend a lot of time with. And just the way that I am and the interactions I would have, the friend, the colleague said to my friend, like, man, Matt just wants to be liked all the time. He just wants people to like him all the time. Why does he do that? And in my mind, I was like, shut up. Like, don't, I was so pissed. Like, don't sit, don't put that on me. Like, I don't want to be liked all the time because in reality, I started talk, talking through with my wife and I was like, I don't, that's not what I want. And so when I left that day, I slashed his tires and then I wanted to go talk to my wife. Just kidding, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I didn't do that. He's still a friend. But it made me so mad because I was like, no, I don't. I don't want to be liked all the time. There are plenty of people that I feel like like me. I got plenty of friends. It's not that I want to be liked, it's that I want to be wanted. And I want to be wanted by the people that I want to want me. And ultimately, that's an insecurity that I have. So as I'm talking to her, my wife, about all this, I'm like, because I feel like right now, I don't feel wanted. I just want to be wanted, and I don't feel wanted. And my wife is looking at me, and she is gonna go and slash his tires because she's so pissed. But then she was so honest, and it was so good, and she was almost aggravated. It was almost this like holy, righteous anger within her. And she looked at me, and she said, you don't feel wanted, who told you that? Like that question, who, who told you that? You don't feel wanted right now, I understand, and that's awful, and I want to go and blow everything up on your behalf, but I just want to know, who told you that? And then I was left with this question, this moment of having to realize, like, no one No one actually told me that they didn't want me. I mean, if anything, if I'm honest with myself, who told you that? I did. I did. Because I allowed my experiences outside of me to determine something within me, something about me. I started to find my identity within this insecurity. And it was a voice inside my head giving me all this self-doubt that I wasn't wanted. And see, this is what we all do. This is what every single one of us do. We have this default to associate the things around us with what's true within us. We think, therefore, we are. And it all starts with your thoughts. And you know why it starts with your thoughts? You know why that's the place, that's the beginning battleground for your identity and for your soul and for who you are? It's because that's exactly what the enemy wants to do to you. So we talked last week about this reality that you have an enemy in life. That God has created you good and incredible for a purpose and on purpose. And yet there is an enemy who wants to take all the life God wants to give you and he wants to steal and kill and destroy that life. That's his entire mission and he's trying to do it. But the way he does it, his strategy of doing that, we see it play out in this threefold strategy. We talked about it last week. This is kind of what it looks like in a much cleaner, prettier way than my drawing. Because what he first does at the very beginning is he introduces a deceptive idea into your head. It's an idea that's, that's deceiving. It's not real. It's a lie. But it's a thought. The very first temptation that we ever see in Scripture is what we talked about last week in Genesis 3. The first temptation that ever existed was a thought because that's what he does. He puts deceptive ideas into your brain that play with your desires, but they are distorted desires. Did you know the enemy can't create anything? All he can do is attempt to distort what God has already created. He doesn't have that power. God has the power to create. He has this ability to distort because he's cunning. He's wily. He is a liar. And so he takes your desires that you have and he distorts them. So a deceptive idea that leans into your distorted desires that ultimately leads to you having destructive behaviors. This is the threefold strategy of the enemy because he knows that whenever he gets you into all three of these things right here in the middle, that's where sin is introduced. That's where rebellion is introduced. That's where he steals and kills and destroys everything God may want to do in your life. And this is what he did. To Eve. Last week I told you that in Genesis 3, I believe it's the truest story ever told because it's the story of human life, of Adam and Eve. Adam meaning human, Eve meaning life. It's a story of human life. It's all of our stories. And this is exactly what he did at the beginning, and it's what he's still doing to us now. And it's what he's trying to do with your identity speaking and whispering lies into who you really are. Look what he did. Go back in Genesis 3. It says, Now the serpent or the enemy was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, there's our phrase, there's our title, there's our series, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And see what he's doing right here is he's giving her a deceptive idea. Like you heard God said something, but uh, did did he really, did he really say that? Are you sure? He implants a, a deception in her brain. But ultimately what he's trying to do is give a a deceptive idea that she can't trust God to be her ultimate authority in life. And then that deceptive idea plays into her distorted desire to be like God because she was designed and created in the image of God to image God with her life. And then that distorted desire when she acts on it leads to a destructive behavior of her breaking God's one command and rule of not eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that's where we kind of left off last time. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And instantaneously, I mean, in a moment, Sin not only entered into the world and into humanity and into our story for the very first time, but so did, catch this, the awareness that they had that they made a mistake. They had no awareness before because all they knew was good. Now they're aware of good and evil and they're all of a sudden aware of their mistakes and it was instant. Look what happens. It says, that in that moment, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized, they became aware, they were awakened to their eyes were open. They were realized that they were naked. And so what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. They become aware of their mistake. And then their immediate response is to cover up and to hide, not to be seen, right? They did it with fig leaves, but we do this proverbially in our life. This is when we hide. This is when we shield ourselves from being vulnerable. We feel naked. We feel exposed and what they started to do is they started to hide and hope that they weren't found out. Cuz isn't that what isn't that what all of us do? Whenever you make mistakes, isn't our default reaction to guilt, to run and hide? I just I just don't want to be found out. If I, I just I got I got to hide this, I got to fix it, I got to cover it, like I just don't want to be. But here's the danger. Here's the danger of guilt and allowing guilt to communicate something of who you are. And this is how the enemy uses it. See, there's no better platform for the enemy to barrage his deceptive ideas into your heart and into your mind than when you feel guilty. Here's why. Because the moment you feel guilty and you start to allow that to determine something of who you are, guilt develops something deeper. It turns into this real nasty word and you start to feel shame. Not only did I make a mistake, but I'm aware of it, and there's a guilt about something I did, but now I'm so ashamed of what I've done. And there's a difference between these two things that speak to your identity, whether you know it or not. Brene Brown actually says it this way. She says, shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame says, I am bad. That's an identity statement based on my experiences of what I did. But guilt says I did something bad. So one is focused on behavior. One is focused on identity. But when guilt runs wild, it grows and it becomes inflamed within you and within your heart and it runs wild. And it starts to say, not that just you did something bad, but, but you are bad. And not just that you are bad, but maybe in terms of where you are and what you're trying to evaluate. No, no, not just that you're bad, but you're you're so bad, you've messed up so much that now you're ruined, and now you've gone too far, and now you've messed up too much, and you'll never get this right. So you know what you should do? You should just quit trying. Just quit trying. Y'all will learn as the more I get to be around you, there is nothing that makes me angrier in this world. Nothing than the fact that we have elevated suicide to become a possibility. It's not an option. And yet the enemy in his deceptive ideas has started to tell us through our guilt and into our shame that you should just quit trying because you're too far gone, there's no hope, no one cares, why are you even doing this? And it's a lie from hell. There's not a single person who's ever experienced someone committing suicide that wished they actually did it. It's never an option, and yet this lie of our enemy within our culture has elevated this to become a possibility. And so when we start to believe these accusations are true about ourselves, they start to do something to us and to our identity and who we think we are. Because whenever I feel ashamed or any of these other emotions what I want to do is I want to run and I want to hide I want to get into the darkness I don't want to be exposed I want to hide in my guilt I want to hide in my shame and the reason why I want to hide is because I don't want to and this is what I think all of us do I don't want to feel this pain again and that is so real and that is so understandable But this feeling that you have, this pain, you'll do whatever it takes to get rid of it because it's it's like poison to you is what you think. Your feelings are so undone by this pain that you begin to run to anything to help you avert that pain, anything to help you forget how ashamed you feel based on your decisions. And so you medicate or you drink or you lash out or you isolate. And in your shame, when you do these things, you slowly start to allow the enemy to accomplish his mission to steal and to kill and to destroy everything that God still wants to do in your life. If you were ever wondering whether or not you have a purpose in life, the next time you wonder, What's my purpose and do I have purpose? all you gotta do is this. If you're still breathing, you still have purpose period. But the enemy wants to take that out. He's trying to take you out and he wants to ruin your life. And so when you stay hidden, when you stay covered up, when you stay shielded from being vulnerable and terrified of being found out, you're doing exactly what Adam and Eve did at the beginning because they started to believe something that was true about them. Look what it it says. It says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God was walking among them. Just, okay, pin that, remember that, insane. God was walking among them in the cool of the day in the garden, and then when they heard him coming, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And if we can be honest, right here is exactly where so many of you find yourself tonight. Based on the experiences around you, outside of you, or the moments that you've had where you've done something that was a mistake that made you feel guilty, that now causes you to think that you should be ashamed. You're hiding from God. And in your hiding, these lies continue to fester and grow. Why? Because you have an enemy that stands there and accuses you of your mistakes screaming that you're not worthy of being saved. So that's exactly what the serpent was whispering into Eve's ear. He's sitting there telling her, you don't, you, don't, you don't deserve this. But while he was whispering it in a hurry, or he's been speaking it into so many of your lives for years, he's been saying, no, 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 you know what's true? Is that, you know what, you are overlooked. You're not even worthy of being looked at. You are, you are alone. No one really cares. Uh-uh, that's, I mean, they may care about people but not about you because ultimately you're unwanted. I mean, that's what I felt. Unwanted because things weren't happening within my expectations of what I wanted. I wanted to be wanted by the people that I wanted and I didn't feel like they were. And so now I'm in this really tough spot of insecurity, this really tough spot based on my decisions and I'm making decisions that don't make sense. And then those decisions are mistakes then those mistakes because of them and that sin that I have makes me feel guilty. And then here's what the enemy starts to say. He said, you know what? You feel guilty. Good. You should, because you know what you really are. You should be ashamed of what you've done. And then in this moment, when you start to feel ashamed, he shoots the biggest arrow into your heart. He possibly could the arrow that has the potential to take you out, not just now in the season of life, but forever. Because what he starts to whisper into your ear or shout into your heart is that God doesn't want you, that God isn't for you, that God couldn't love you, and that you've ruined it. And you know what he really says is this not that you're just ashamed, but you are condemned. Spelled that wrong, fix it. You're condemned. You're condemned. You're condemned to a life because of the consequences of your sin that you can no longer be with God. You messed up so much that you have lost all hope of ever being with him. Because of your sin, because of your mistakes and the guilt that you feel and that shame, you should feel that because ultimately you're condemned. You can't be with God anymore because of your sin. You know what? He's right. He's right, because in your sin, you can no longer be in God's presence. You can't be with him anymore. It has ruined the relationship that you can have with him, completely. And see, it's ruined your relationship, and all of us are born into that, all of us experience this, but it's also exactly what happened in the garden. It's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve, because they would have to be kicked out of the garden expelled from God's presence, no longer allowed to walk in the garden and have a conversation with Him because of their sin. And so he had to banish them from the garden. There was a, ready? There was a consequence to their actions that exists in life that you can't escape. There are consequences to your actions. And so they had to leave the garden. But here's where maybe the most important part of the entire story but before they're kicked out, before they can no longer be in God's presence, we see the enemy miss the most important part. See, he's so busy accusing them, because that's what he is, he's an accuser. He's so busy accusing them that they should be condemned because of their mistakes that he forgot to notice how God was actually responding to their sin. Watch what happens with Adam and Eve. They sin, they make a mistake. God shows up and look what happens. The Lord God called to the man while they're hiding in fear that he would find them. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? And the man answered, I I, I, heard, you, I heard you in the garden, but, but I was afraid because I was, I was naked and so, and so I hid. And God in this moment fully knows what happened but he's still coming close to them. He's still drawing near to them. He's trying to find them, even though they are lost. So in this moment, here's what is the best part. We're naked and so we hid and God said, who told you that you were naked? And in this moment, God is challenging the reality of what this man is believing. You're naked, you feel ashamed. You need to hide from me? Why? Who told you that? Who told you that you can't be in my presence anymore? Because guess what? It wasn't me. You want to know what I want to do? I'm going to come after you. I'm trying to find you. I'm right here. You can't do too much for me to stop running after you. You can't do anything to make me change the way I view you. And while this interaction's happening, while God is pursuing Adam and Eve, the enemy is sitting in the background just waiting, waiting for that condemnation to be thrown at them, thrown at all of humanity. Because it's what he's trying to do, but what he doesn't realize and what he doesn't see coming, but what actually happens is it rebounds right back at him. See, they sin and God steps closer. They sin and he pursues. They're like, We got to hide from you. We can't, we're not deserving of this anymore. And he's like, Whoa, 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 where are you? I want to find you. I want to find you. See, God knew what was going on. But in this moment, in this interaction, he gives them a chance to do something. And it's the opportunity that all of you have to do as well. He gives them an opportunity to be honest, to be honest about their decisions to be honest about what's really going on, to be honest about their mistakes. And he gives them a chance to stop hiding and covering up. So so God said, who told you that, that you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from? He already knew the answer. And the man said, well, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree. And I'll be honest, I ate it. I made a mistake. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me. That's what he does. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He puts deceptive ideas into your head that play into some distorted desire that you have that leads you to a destructive behavior. And guess what? My behavior was destructive. I, I'll be honest, I ate it. And now, in this moment, in this story, this is when the enemy thinks condemnation's coming. But from their honesty, what we see is that God doesn't want to eliminate, here, catch it. He doesn't want to eliminate their consequences. This isn't what happens next. God doesn't eliminate their consequences from their decisions. He actually goes on over the next few verses to tell them everything of what's going to happen now. And how death will enter the story. And how they'll have to leave the garden. But this is the most important part. But God's view of them and how much he wants them and how much he's going to pursue them and how much he loves them never changes. Because what we see him do is we see him actually take care of them before they leave. In verse 7, it says they realized they were naked and so they tried to cover themselves, but they couldn't do it fully. And so what we see God do is he actually takes an animal and the first sacrifice we ever see in scripture is when God takes an animal and actually would have to kill it to make a sacrifice for their sin and cover them. He made covering, he made clothing for them so that he didn't send them out out of the garden into the wilderness. He didn't send them out naked and ashamed. He sent them out covered and protected because he loves them. He covers them. He wants to take care of them. He's for them. And then, this is the most important part. He, right here, starts to say that I've got a plan, not only just to send them out nicely and kindly, but I've got a plan to get them back. And this is the beginning of when we see his great rescue plan into the story. In verse 15, here's what he actually says. This, this prophecy that he speaks towards the serpent, towards the enemy. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And this is it. He says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This right here is the very first mention of God's great rescue plan for humanity. He is declaring that he is coming for you. You've been born into sin, you've believed deceptive ideas, you've felt ashamed and you think you're condemned, but God's sitting here saying, I'm coming after you and nothing is going to stop me. Yes, they made some mistakes. Yes, there are some consequences, but God's gonna make it right because this is a prophecy and a promise of Jesus That one day he would show up and he would come in as a descendant of Eve, as a man. He would take on human form. And then on the cross, the enemy would think he defeated him because he would be struck and he would be killed. But on the third day, when he raised from the dead, he would defeat death and crush the enemy's head forever on our behalf. He never left you. He never stopped looking for you. He never stopped caring for you. He never stopped loving you because he can't. It's within his character to say, you are mine and you are lovely because I made you and I want you. It doesn't matter what you've done. Your decisions in life don't have to define you. There is something greater within you that wants to tell you who you are and give you a more and better life than you could ever dream of. And here's what happens. When Jesus shows up on the scene, when we see in the accounts of the gospels, him show up, this is the exact same message. He continues to deliver to people day in and day out through every single interaction. People that culture have labeled condemned. Jesus goes to them and says, ah, that's not how I see you. And John chapter eight is one of the best examples. In John chapter eight, there's this woman caught in adultery. Just imagine the scene of that. And all these men, these religious leaders, pull her out of, this, out of this situation and they bring her before Jesus and they're condemning her to death because by law, she should be stoned to death. And they sit her there and they say, what now, Jesus? What are you gonna do? And then Jesus has this interaction where he silences the crowd and he quiets the accusations. And he's sitting there With everyone watching, this crowd, this culture, this society saying you should be canceled because of what you've done. You should be killed because of what you've done. It says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said, okay, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So maybe before you start condemning other people, realize there's something that you've done. There are mistakes that you've made. There's guilt that you felt. There's a shame that you felt. And there's a condemnation that maybe you feel like you had deserved before as well. So let the person without sin throw the first stone to actually kill this woman. And at this, at this moment, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left. The woman's still standing there. Maybe that's what y'all need to do. Maybe you need to get rid of all these voices, all these things, communicating something about you, to stand unashamed, vulnerable, and honest before Jesus, to have this interaction with him just like the woman did, because Jesus straightened up at this moment he's the only one left and he asked her, "Hey woman, probably knew her name. Where are they? Where are they? Where've all the voices gone? Where's the crowd gone? Where's the culture gone? Where are they? Where have those feelings gone? Those associations you've made. Where have they gone? Has no one has no one condemned you? Where's the condemnation now? All the outside voices are gone. Where is it now? Has anyone condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And this is it. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus quiets the crowds. He cancels the condemnation so that when you choose to follow him, and you allow him to rescue you from your sin, you no longer stand condemned for your mistakes. Your shame is silenced, your condemnation is canceled. And now, now you're free. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to live up to some standard. I don't have to impress anybody. Now I'm free to find out who I really am through the eyes of my creator God, my ultimate authority who loves me, who loves me. See, maybe what we need to do is we need to realize that when you look at the reality of who you are and what's determining that answer of who am I really, the offer for some of you is that whenever you choose to follow Jesus, what it means is that you place him At the center of who you are, you place him at the center. You give him your life. You say, Wait a minute, I don't stand condemned in front of you. You're God. You're the one with the authority to do this. I don't. And then, whenever you do this, you let him begin to inform you from the inside out. You allow him to begin to inform you of how to answer the question to your identity of who am I really? I mean, that's what we're trying to answer. Who am I really? And when Jesus would sit here and say is, as you've answered that question before in your life, I just want to ask you, who told you that? Who, who told you that? Who are you really? And who told you that? Because maybe for some of you, you never even understood or realized, or you've been living in a shame, you've been living in condemnation, you've been living hiding and running and not being afraid to be vulnerable with shields and swords and everything up to protect yourself because of everything around you. Maybe words have been spoken to you. Maybe things happen to you that are so far beyond imagination. Maybe there's abuse. Maybe there's attacks. Maybe you've been betrayed. All of those things are so real and so awful and have happened in so many of your lives. But the moment we begin to allow those things to determine who we are, we're giving the keys to our life to everything else around us. And God's sitting here saying, I didn't design you for that. I designed you for so much more. So who am I really? Who told you that? Because if you didn't know, God wants to. He wants to tell you who you are and how lovely you are and how worth loving you are if you'll let him. So I am very aware that tonight, the conversation is one that has a lot of emotion. There's a lot in this because every single one of us are navigating this in some way. The level of shame and guilt that you're walking in here with, the level of darkness based on your decisions that you're having to navigate is difficult to talk about. And it's hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to deal with shame. And yet maybe for some of you, who've never actually given your life to Jesus, never said, okay, I do wanna follow you, there may be no better opportunity and no better reason than what you just heard, that there is a God who loves you so much that he sees what you've done and he says, I love you anyways. You don't, yes, there are consequences, but there doesn't have to be condemnation. When you follow Jesus, he cancels all of that because then when God sees you, you know what he really sees? He sees Jesus. Because he has covered your life. Because he has given you clothing. He's wrapped you up and he has said, you are mine and I'm gonna take care of you. I'm gonna tell you who you really are. And so what we wanna do is give you space to navigate, to process, to think, and for some of you to feel. Guys in the room, can we just be honest? Y'all struggle with this and no one talks about it. Y'all struggle with insecurity. You feel like you're not good enough. You feel like if only this would happen or if only she would like me or if I only had this thing, then I'd be enough. And the reality is you're never going to find it from anything outside or around you. So are you willing to be honest? Are you willing to be vulnerable? Are you willing to receive unconditional love from a God who created you? A love that maybe your father didn't provide to you Or maybe it went to some other sibling, but you felt left out. Girls, maybe it's something that no one else has given to you, and you've been searching and seeking in every possible outlet, but you just need to realize that the only place you're truly going to find everything of who you were meant to be is in the arms of Jesus. Because he loves you. Because he cares for you. Because you are so valuable to him, he gave everything for you. That's why Jesus gave up his life for you. So that you didn't have to keep living in that darkness, living with that condemnation. And so, the first step to any of this, of figuring out how God would actually want to tell you who you are, is allowing those voices, those previous narratives, to be taken away, to strip them away, to get rid of them, and to stop listening. And so my question is I want you to process is what lies and accusations about you have you been embracing as true of you that God would sit here and say, no, no. I've got so much more than that. If you would just lean in and be honest. So the band is gonna come out and they're gonna, begin this time of worship with a song that I want them, and I mean this, I want them to sing it over you. Like I know in the front we like to stand up and we like to engage. I ask y'all to stay seated. Even if for the respect of everyone else in the room to feel like they have room to process. And listen, this is a big room. We got a lot of space. If you need to move around the room, you are free. You can move around to process what God may be doing within you. There is a voice that may be actually speaking to you. Don't disregard it the rest of your life could hinge upon whether or not you say yes. So we wanna give you a chance to process that, to feel that, to navigate those emotions of what's going on in your life and what voices you've been listening to instead of what's true and what's real and what he wants for you. So let me pray for y'all. And then we're gonna jump in. And I just ask that you would engage. Just give it a chance and be honest. So Father, thank you. Thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you love us, not because of what we've done, but in spite of what we've done. The students in here that are addicted to pornography or that are making decisions that are crossing sexual boundaries with their boyfriend or their girlfriend or the person that they just met, Father, I just ask that you would allow them to see that there's freedom, there's forgiveness, and there's grace. More grace than they could ever imagine if they would just turn to you that you wanna offer freedom, you wanna offer freedom from addiction, you wanna offer freedom from depression, from the anxieties that we carry, from the lies that we listen to and the labels we place on ourselves about who we actually are because of what we've done or because of what someone else has said that's not you. So Jesus, do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, run wild in this room and in the hearts of every single person that's watching or listening. I pray that you would do what only you can do. And in the name of Jesus, I pray that you, as you strip away and perform surgery on all the lies that have taken root in our life, that you would fill that back in with healing and with hope and with more life than we could ever dream of. Because that's what you do. So we need you. For the student who's at the end of their rope and at the end of themselves, they need you. So please, please show up and speak truth into our lives. Jesus, thank you for loving us first. We love you right back. It's your name we pray, amen.